Our scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. Uh, <clears throat> we're going through the book of Ephesians. It's like incredibly, incredibly. Oh, I'm sorry. Chapter 3. <laughs> I have my, uh, if you could see, I print out the passage and I make notes on it. And I had last week's passage in front of me. Uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 13. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that, had, that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let me, uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get started. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you just for this time, and we thank you for your word. And your word is, uh, you know, just as we've been thinking about the light, I think about a lot of the, uh, the verbs that the psalmist uses in Psalm 119 and how they have to do with delighting in your law. And as we hear from your word, we want to delight in that too. We want to know that your word is good. Um, we want to know that even when your word challenges us or challenges our um, pre assumptions in life or challenges our desires or uh, any of those things that even in its challenge, it is something good and something that we want to delight in. And as we think about the church and consider the gospel in the church, we pray God that you would um, not only instruct us, but give us a deep, deep, deep heart first for you. And because we have a heart for you, um, a heart for the church as well. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. All right. I got some good feedback from some first graders. They said, uh, I talk too long on Sundays and it gets close to lunchtime and uh, they get hungry. So I said, I'll try to keep it a little shorter, but uh, in reality, it won't be that much shorter. So sorry, first graders. <laughs> All right. These days, uh, it's, it's hard not to be distracted. And uh, when I, I remember when I first came to New York, I, I have this memory where uh, I used to say New Yorkers have shifty eyes. And what I meant by that is like when I was having a conversation with somebody in New York, I would just see like their eyes like shift, right? So we would be having a conversation. Can you see my eyes? And they would like constantly be scanning the room, right? Still talking to me like this. And I was like, well, that's such a weird, um, weird thing that people in New York uh, do. That, that was like one of my first memories of coming to New York or one of the first things that I noticed. And uh, I think we're generally a distracted people and technology has formed us in such a way that. Uh, it's hard to hold our attention nowadays. And I notice this in the, the shows that kids watch. 
the way that they are edited, uh, the scene or the camera angle, it's, it's always changing in order to keep kids engaged. And conversely, if you were to watch like an old episode of Mr. Rogers, uh, there weren't that many changes in the camera angle. It's like a still shot. Uh, but not all distractions are necessarily bad. You know, a bad distraction is one that is not really going to fill you. And technological distractions are a little bit like that. So uh, a group working out in the park to loud music behind someone who is preaching, right? That's a bad distraction, right? Uh, we shift our attention, but there's not much reward for that to see people, you know, doing their exercises and, and bending over and things like that. But there are actually good distractions. Uh, a good kind of distraction might be the kind where you're actually drawn away to look from look away from what you're currently working on uh, to see something beautiful or to see something that might fill your soul. And so, you know, if you're just constantly like looking at a screen and working like, uh, I don't know, 15, 18 hours a day, sometimes it's actually good to be distracted away from that and remember, oh, there's meaning in life, there's purpose in life, there's beauty in life. And so maybe if you're at home and you're working and then uh, you know, you just kind of see, it's like that rare moment where your kids are not fighting, but they're like laughing and there's like a genuine joy uh, and they're playing and you kind of stop your work and you watch them and it, it kind of fills your soul. So I would say that's a good kind of distraction. Or if you're working in the park and the weather is beautiful and you just kind of stare at the flowers and the trees, that might fill your soul. Uh, or if you're, you know, focused on your own anxieties and your own issues too much, and then you see somebody's beautiful act of service, and it kind of takes your mind off yourself for a moment, that's a good distraction. So some distractions are good and necessary because they necessarily draw our attention to something that is better. Now, are there any good distractions to prayer? Well, apparently there is because Paul, as he is about to begin his prayer, he himself gets distracted with the beauty of the mystery of Christ. In this very first verse, Paul starts to say something that we find out in next week's passage was supposed to be a prayer, right? He's getting ready to pray. But then he interrupts that thought, and you can see it in the uh, English where there's like that big dash. He interrupts that thought, and then he goes on a tangent. So verse 1 says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he interrupts the thought and starts saying, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given me to you. And then he continues on and on. So we've been in Ephesians because we are supposed to be thinking about the church and the nature of the church. And we will get to the church uh, towards the end a bit later. But Paul gets distracted here and he starts to reflect upon his calling and he starts to reflect upon uh, this great mystery of the gospel. And there is a sense of awe that he gets uh, to be a minister of the gospel to these Gentiles. And I think that's important because if we want to be a church that does serve others, if we want to be a church that serves others like Paul did, I do think we really need to have a sense of awe for who God is and uh, even a sense of awe for this message, this great mystery, right? The mysteries of Christ, this message of the gospel, and a sense of awe for what God has done in actually even creating the church. Now, there's basically two words here that I want to highlight uh, for this sermon, and the first word is the word mystery. That word comes up a few times in our passage. You see it in verse 3, the mystery that was made known to me by revelation. In verse 4, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. In verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And then in verse 9, the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God. And when we think about mystery, it means uh, we probably think about it as 
something that is to be solved or something that needs to be worked out. So there's this genre of mystery podcast, and it takes you through a crime or some kind of murder. And as you listen to these podcasts, you're given more clues and more data. And part of the, I think, intrigue or interest in listening to these kinds of uh, podcasts or reading mystery novels is that you get to use your skills of reason and deduction to try to solve the mystery. But Paul is using the word mystery in a slightly different way here. Starting from Ephesians 1, Paul presents this enormously cosmic vision of the things of God. And, you know, the book of Ephesians is sort of like a funnel where it begins like with these really high and lofty statements and and then eventually it kind of funnels down and gets into the more specific and more practical. So it starts with lofty statements about the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And then eventually it's going to start to talk about, right, starting in Ephesians 4 and 5, it gets to talking about relationships between uh, slave and master, husband and wife, parents and children. And in Paul's mind, these lofty things are actually connected to these specific practical things. And when something is as high and lofty as the things of God, you can't reach it on your own. That's why it's, it's not a mystery that we can solve because it takes more than human reason or deduction to unveil that mystery. And that, of course, is the lesson of the Tower of Babel, where people thought they could build a tower tall enough to reach God, but that was an expression of their pride. And God came down and confused their language so that they couldn't understand each other. And that ultimately ended up dividing the people over the face of the earth. But when Paul uses mystery, it's not something unknown that can be solved, but it's more like something that is hidden that has now been revealed. It's been revealed. And Paul says that explicitly in verse three, he says the mystery was made known to him by revelation. Now, the idea of revelation, it does have a gracious component to it, right? There's a difference between solving a mystery and finding the answer uh, versus having somebody give you the answer, someone showing you the answer. Uh, if someone shows you the answer versus you solving it, then you can't really claim to be superior to anybody else. And, uh, you know, some people may try to claim to be superior because they have the answer. But at the end of the day, it's not as if they were smarter or more enlightened than anybody else. They were just in a position to be shown that which was hidden, that which was mysterious. And Paul has a perspective when it comes to the mysteries of Christ. It was hidden. And God revealed this great mystery to him so that he might be a steward of God's revelation in service of God. That's how he views his, his ministry. Now, one of the reasons why this mystery had to be revealed is actually because it's pretty counterintuitive. Uh, on the surface, it doesn't actually seem to make very much sense. It, it's not something that you would expect. There are a lot of things in the Bible that uh, I, I would argue um, you would say makes a lot of sense. You might expect it to be true. You might expect that God would be against things like murder and things like theft, which is why the Ten Commandments are not called a mystery. But to say that God would come in the person of Jesus Christ and die upon a cross, that is a mystery. It's counterintuitive, and nobody would ever have expected God to do that. And if you were to ask, how is God going to redeem Israel and restore this broken world? Nobody would ever have thought the answer is for God to become like us and to die this really shameful death upon a cross. And that is how the world will be restored. Nobody would guess that to be a solution to the problem of sin and death in the world. But the only reason we know it is the solution, God's solution, is because God unveiled his plan, which was now once hidden, but has now been revealed in Christ. 
but the other side of that mystery works on the horizontal plane as well. Uh, it's the bringing together of these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, and creating this one new humanity. And that's what Paul says explicitly in verse six. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And to say that those who were once far off and outside of the promises of God are now invited to come in and to become fellow heirs of the promise and engrafted to becoming members of that same body, that is also an incredible mystery. Last week, I said to bring Jews and Gentiles together would have been virtually impossible to do, so much so that it would have required nothing less than an act of God. Well, the act of God was the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus not only tore the veil of the temple, allowing uh, you know, sinners to come and enter into the Holy of Holies, he also broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And if you remember last week, I said he's talking about it literally, the, the temple wall that divided the Gentiles and the Israelites, the Jews. That wall is now broken down. And so unity is part of the great mystery of the gospel. God's plan that was now hidden, that was once hidden, is now revealed. But how is that plan revealed? And this is where we get to the church. This is our second word. You know, it's, it happens through the church. As Paul is talking uh, about the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, he says in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, I want to break that down a little bit and really think about what that means. First, Paul is saying that the means through which God makes these hidden mysteries known, right, the, his manifold wisdom known, is through the vehicle of the church. Now, I hope this is coming across in, in this very short series, but my, my purpose and my point in this series is very simple. I've been trying to say, basically, the church is incredibly important, right? That's the point of the series. The church is incredibly important. It is not an add-on to Christianity, but it is actually intertwined with the gospel message, so much so that we probably can't separate the two. And I can see why people would think that, you know, if the church only had a practical or a utilitarian purpose, uh, then maybe uh, the church is not as important when it doesn't fulfill that utilitarian purpose, right? If you look at the church as a place where uh, it's, it's where you get to meet people or it's where you can get inspired or it's where you can learn some new things, then eventually you won't find the church to be all that important uh, if those things start to fade away and become less important to you or if the church doesn't actually do those things anymore. And uh, not only that, with so many negative narratives about the church, it, it's easy to dismiss the church uh, as being unimportant because it's so corrupt and so broken, right? And all those kinds of things. But, you know, if anybody saw the corruption of the church, Paul did, right? He wrote letters to the Corinthian church, which was incredibly corrupt, more corrupt than any church I can think of even in the present day. And yet he still held the church in high regard. Why? Because to Paul, the church is not just a, uh, an, a business organization or a business institution or an earthly institution, for Paul, the church is a spiritual institution. The church should be important to us because it's important to God. Now, Paul's been making all kinds of lofty cosmic statements in the first two chapters. 
And it would be easy to see the church as somewhat maybe disconnected from those lofty statements. But what Paul is saying is not uh, disconnected from the church, but the church is actually a very much, uh, very much an essential part of what he's been saying this whole time. This great mystery, this manifold wisdom of God is displayed through the church. How does God display it through the church? Well, while a ministry of proclamation and preaching is important, I don't think that's what he has in mind based on the context of this text. The way the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church is through the unity of the community of God. When Jews and Gentiles reconcile and come together, it is a display of the mystery of the gospel. When different nations come together, when different generations come together, when different political groups come together in unity because of this shared faith, shared profession of faith in Christ Jesus, it is a display of the mystery of the gospel. Now, there was a uh, British missionary to India named Leslie Newbigin, and he's famous for saying this quote. He says, the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And what he meant by this is the church is actually how one comes to understand the gospel because when the church displays the gospel in its life, right, in its community, then people have a better understanding of what the gospel message is. And when people who wouldn't normally be friends, and, you know, we have those kinds of relationships uh, in every church, right? I wouldn't necessarily be friends with that person. When people like that who wouldn't normally be friends, uh, when they come together and they join one another's lives and become part of one another's lives, it actually displays the dynamics of the gospel. Now, a few of us are reading a systematic theology book together, and uh, the author made a really good point about the church. You know, when it comes to the doctrine of the church, one of the questions people have asked is, how do you distinguish a true church from a false church? And so Protestants came up with these marks of the church, of the, of the true church, and uh, Protestants would say, well, it's the preaching of the word, it's the administration of the sacraments, and it's church discipline. And as a Protestant, of course, I agree with all those things. But the author then asks, why isn't love one of the marks of the church, right? And I think that's a good point. Shouldn't love actually be a distinguishing mark of the church, of the true church? Um, and, you know, maybe it's because it's too abstract and there's different degrees of love um, where it's like hard to tell whether a church has love. But, you know, I take his point. Love is that important in order to determine whether this is actually a, a church that belongs to God or not. When there is no unity in the church that is bound by love, then it is not going to be a church that displays the mystery of Christ in the gospel message. But let's look at the second part of the sentence. And I think, I think the second part of the sentence blows my mind. It's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known, but made known to whom? What does Paul say? He says, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You would expect Paul to say, well, the church displays the manifold wisdom of God to all the unbelievers in the world, right? So that they can be drawn to the gospel and believe in Jesus. You might expect Paul to say that, but that's not what he says. He basically says the church displays God's manifold wisdom to uh, the angels and the demons in the cosmic realm, right? That's what he's talking about when he's talking about the rulers of the heavenly places. Uh, it's not just to the visible world. But the church displays God's wisdom to the invisible world as well. And that's what I mean when I say the church is not simply an earthly institution. It's a spiritual institution. 
It has an impact on the spiritual realm. It has a purpose and a function in the invisible world, the spiritual world. Now, one of the struggles about a book like Ephesians is that so much of what Paul says is like so high and so lofty, and we, we really aren't sure what it means uh, for us. And, uh, you know, we just went through a series on the book of Revelation. We said the church would be victorious because the church shares in the victory of Christ and Jesus wins. And by virtue of our union with Christ, we win too. And the church is supposed to be a foretaste of that victory. And so one commentator calls, um, well, Paul says here at the church, one commentator says, the church is basically God's pilot program. It's a, it's a taste of what is to come in this final community when Jesus returns, when that victory is consummated. So through the church, we are on display not only to the visible world, but to the spiritual world, to the heavenly places. And the church displays the manifold wisdom of God and displays the victory of Christ that is to come to the heavenly places, to the cosmic places. And so the church is not important primarily for practical purposes, as though we can draw a line from A to B and say, well, the church fulfills this function on earth, but the church has spiritual purposes as well. And I think that's something that has to be built into our understanding of the church. Otherwise, uh, we're not actually going to see the church as being all that important, especially as outwardly we see uh, so many negative things. And God uses the church to display that manifold wisdom to the heavenly places. But you say, but, but the church is messed up and broken. Uh, I would say, no, the church is worse than that. It's not just messed up and broken. The church was once filled with dead people, right? That's what we learned in uh, the first sermon in uh, Ephesians 2. The church was filled with dead people. And that's what makes it such a perfect vehicle to display the power of the gospel. Through Christ, we are a people who have been raised to new life. The dividing walls of hostility have been broken down. We are now united and reconciled to one another in this new humanity. And when we see the fruit of that, the manifold wisdom of God is displayed, not just to the visible world, but also to the invisible world. Uh, I can see somebody responding to this and thinking about how certain people uh, in the past, or maybe even the present, have been difficult to get along with and how hard it can be to be in community with certain kinds of people. And you're probably saying to me, uh, all right, let, let's keep it real, right? That's nice. That's inspirational. Let's keep it real. And uh, some people are just not going to get along in life. We live in an age where authenticity is a high value. And so because of that, I can see a lot of people saying, uh, like, let's, let's just keep it real. Let's, let's keep it rooted in reality. And I guess my response would be, uh, I think this is what Paul might say uh, to you if you say, let's keep it real. I think he would say it back to you and he would say, you keep it real, right? You keep it real. Reality is not based on what you think is possible or impossible. Reality is not what you think you are able to do or what you are willing to do. Reality is what God has objectively accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if God could save a sinner like you in reality, then in reality, he can certainly bring together two groups that were once hostile to one another or two people who were once hostile to one another. He can bring those two people uh, together in unity. And that's, that's the spiritual reality. That is the power of the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying in this entire letter. And so if that is uh, that cosmic spiritual, if that is the cosmic spiritual reality, then keeping it real would actually be 
to live that reality out in your life or to strive for that reality out in your life. Why? Because you have been given the peace of Christ. Paul is a steward of this great mystery, the mysteries of Christ, uh, which has been revealed supernaturally. And to him in particular, when he's talking about the revelation he received, he's talking about his experience on the road to Damascus. Um, it's been revealed to the apostles and the prophets, and he's been a steward of preaching that mystery to us. And for, think about it, for thousands of years, right? 2,000 years, uh, through this mystery uh, that has continually been revealed to more and more and more people, uh, the church has grown in spite of all the negative things about the church. And I think it's a display, once again, of the power of God, the power of the gospel. And uh, I'm sure if we went through history, we would see so many people who were uh, against each other, uh, either nationally or uh, maybe ethnic groups were against each other. And God has brought them together. And it's a display, again, not of the goodness of these groups of people, but really of the power, the power of the mystery of Christ, who brings us together through this common bond uh, of faith, because we, uh, we are in that same spirit. And the church is important. Why? Because the church is the way that that is displayed, not only to this world, but to the heavenly places as well. So let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for the gift of the church. And, um, you know, we pray that you, you forgive us if our, uh, our vision of the church has been so limited by basically what we see. And we ask that you give us the gift of faith to see the church uh, as you see it and the purposes of the church as you see it. Um, that even when we mess up and when we don't do things well, or, you know, even when we see other churches and what other churches are doing, and uh, maybe we feel uh, we're not doing good enough or uh, whatever it might be. Um, we ask God that you would give us the faith to overcome that and to, to see the importance of the relationships uh, that you give us here and the importance of the relationships of uh, those who are around us and the importance of love and unity and reconciliation and displaying this great mystery of the gospel. And um, you know, for those of us who are struggling with that right now, uh, you know, we, we can't will ourselves to do these things, but um, uh you know, we don't pursue unity first. Uh, we want to pursue Christ first, and we want to allow Christ to dwell in our hearts and um, show us the the power of uh, forgiveness and reconciliation as you call us to yourself. And out of that, we want to display that in our relationships and through the church. So help us to be a church that can uh, be a, a powerful witness, not only to um, to this world, but a powerful witness to the heavenly places. So much so that uh, as the spiritual forces, uh, the demons and the rulers up in the air, um, as they see the church um, pursuing unity and reconciliation, that they would also have a foretaste that the victory of Christ is coming because Jesus is powerful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.